Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that we are healthy and strong, able to be here today, Father, and participate in corporate worship, prayer, and fellowship, and most of all, Father, in a deep and abiding study of your word. Never let us forget, Father, the privilege that it is to be subject to a study of your word in a methodical and in-depth way when we know so many others either lack opportunity or lack desire for the very thing that you said would feed us in eternal ways. We ask, Father, that the word as it's presented this morning would be taught by the Spirit in the hearts of all who would hear, that the teaching would be directed at us in a personal way, that what we hear would be reminders of things you've spoken to us on times past in our hearts and remind us every day in our experience. And let it be kindled afresh, Father, as we hear it once more, that we might be prompted into obedience and have courage to put aside those sins that encumber us and that we may live according to what we learn. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since I know you would be counting and are probably keeping track of this, this is our 90th lesson in the story of Genesis. It is also today the second anniversary that we started this study. And we still have 20% remaining, which means maybe six months. So why has it taken us 90 lessons to get thus far in the story of Genesis? And you cannot say lack of skill. It's simply the depth required to understand this book. And I dare say I've probably only scratched the surface with what God's word can reveal. And as we enter into chapter 39 this morning, we find ourselves backing up chronologically speaking, because as you may remember, when we left at the end of chapter 37, two chapters ago, we were at the point where Joseph was sitting in chains in the Midianite caravan headed down to slavery in Egypt. His brothers had just sold him into slavery, as you remember. And then they went home and reported to their father, Jacob, that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. That's where we left at the end of chapter 37. Then we moved into chapter 38 and The focus shifted from Joseph to the story of Judah, to his misadventures in Canaan. That became the topic out of chapter 38. And we said when we studied that chapter that the text of chapter 38 spans about 20 or 22 years of history in the family of Judah. So when chapter 38 began, Joseph was on his way to Egypt and he was about 17 years old. As chapter 38 ended... 22 years later, Joseph would have been nearly 40. Now, at the start of chapter 39, we actually move back in time to the beginning of that same 22-year period of history. Joseph is now 17 again. And he didn't actually go to 40 and come back, but you know the point I'm making. So Joseph's story now is to be told from that same period of time through chapter 39 and onward. So he is 17. He's arrived in Egypt as a slave. He's undoubtedly hurt. By his brother's betrayal, he's got to be frightened out of his wits, and he probably has no idea what lies ahead of him. Now, don't forget the larger story that we're also following in this account, in this narrative. And by larger story, I'm referring to the Toldot of Jacob, the genealogy story of him and his children. That story is centered on two questions. The question of who receives the privilege of the birthright in the family of Jacob, that being the right to have the double portion of the inheritance and to have the patriarchal leadership over the family. And then the second story was who received the seed promise, the promise that God gave Abraham that he would birth the Messiah at some point in his family. Well, 
We learned earlier that Judah is carrying the seed promise. And so chapter 38 was our account on that side of the family and on that side of the inheritance. And we learned earlier than that in chapter 37 that Joseph would be the son who carries the birthright. How did we learn that? Well, do you remember those dreams? The dreams that Joseph was given that told him that he would rule over the whole rest of Jacob's family, including over the parents? Well, those dreams told us that Joseph will receive the birthright because they told us that Joseph would have the patriarchal authority in the family one day. Now, that's true, even though he was the next to last born, even though he was the first natural born of Rachel. So it's further evidence of the pattern we've seen all through Genesis in which the older shall serve the younger, in which God picks the unlikely one to carry his promise rather than the one the world would pick so that we would remember it is him making these decisions. So Joseph's dream told us he would have the birthright, but those dreams never explained how he would arrive at that. Because naturally speaking, he wasn't going to find his brothers or his father granting it to him. In fact, we remember his brothers decided that they wanted nothing to do with such an outcome. They conspired against their younger brother so that he could not rule over them. And after discussing all their options, they decided to sell him into slavery, sending him out from the family to Egypt and thereby preventing him, so they thought, from arriving at the birthright. Now, did that plan actually thwart God's purposes? Did it actually stop the plan of God? Or did it actually ensure that the plan of God would have success? Well, Joseph's circumstances are not evidence that men can stand in the way of God's promises or put them at risk in any way. On the contrary, his circumstances now in Egypt, as we study them in chapter 39, are proof that God's always at work to accomplish things and in marvelous ways, ways we don't expect, working through the sin of men if necessary. So that's the larger story we're still watching as we study the life of Joseph. Finally, as we go through this story, I want to remind you also to continue looking for those parallels between Joseph's life and Christ's life. Remember, we've said that Joseph's story is one of the Bible's great shadows or pictures of the Messiah. Many details of Joseph's life reflect the details of the Messiah's life. We want to continue to look for those circumstances as we move through the story. With that background, let's go to chapter 39. We'll start in verse 1. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now, his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned, he put in his charge. It came about that from that time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned, in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. As I mentioned, the story of Joseph picks up from where it left off in Genesis 37, verse 26 as Joseph is led into Egypt. And as it turns out, the owner who purchases 
Joseph off those slave traders is none other than a man named Potiphar. We've all heard his name probably. And he is a servant of Pharaoh. Now, the Pharaoh in this case was probably a man by the name of Sosostris. And Sosostris ruled in the early 19th century B.C. over Egypt. And his personal bodyguard or captain is Potiphar, meaning he is a man of power and means. He's called first an Egyptian. Potiphar's called an Egyptian. Now, you might be saying, well, of course he's an Egyptian, Steve. He's in Egypt, after all. But that's not a given, actually, in this day, historically speaking. The Egyptian empire in this day was ruled by non-Egyptians, by a group called Hyksos. And the Hyksos were not an Egyptian people. They were a Semite people. As you remember, perhaps back in Genesis 9, after the flood was over and Noah's three sons moved out and repopulated the earth, we learned that Africa was settled by Ham. And so the people who then populated that continent are called Hamites from the descending of Ham. But when you go north and east from there into the lands of the Middle East and the Far East, those lands were settled by the brother Shem. And Shem's descendants, at least in part, are called Semites. So you have the Hamites and the Semites. Well, one of those Semitic people are the Hyksos. And the Hyksos invaded Egypt from the north, came in and conquered the Hamites, the native Egyptians, and set up what became the 16th and 17th dynasties in Egypt. So when you hear that Potiphar was an Egyptian, it means he was a Hamite who was willing to work for the occupying Semite rulers and to serve them in order to gain this position of authority and power. You can learn more about the importance of the Hicksaw dynasties and how they played a role in God's purposes in Israel by studying the book of Exodus study that's currently online. The second thing we learn about Potiphar is he is the captain of the guard which means he was the leader over the personal bodyguards that attended to Pharaoh and to the court of Pharaoh. Now, he was an Egyptian, as we learned, so that means that he had to have proven himself in some way. Think about it. The invading Hyksos make one of the Hamite peoples responsible for their own personal protection? That was quite a risk. Potiphar must have been a ruthless man. He must have been someone who was willing to turn his back on fellow Egyptians, maybe to prove himself through some act that demonstrated loyalty to the Hicksaw regime. If nothing else, he was a man who sought power. This also suggests he was tough, maybe even a harsh man. His position would certainly have required that. In fact, in his position, he would have had authority under his own power to put men to death, to call for someone's head. So that must mean he had to be respected and feared. All of these things must be true for a man in his position. The last thing we hear about him is he's an officer of Pharaoh's court. Now, the English just does not do this justice because the word for officer in Hebrew is saris, which is literally the word for eunuch, meaning an emasculated male. It was common for monarchs in this age to require that those who would serve in the court, especially any who might be around the harem of the Pharaoh, to undergo emasculation as a consequence or as a requirement before they could serve in this way. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch who was on the road back from traveling to Jerusalem to worship, and his role in the court of the queen of Ethiopia required that he be a eunuch as well. Well, the text says he was not an officer of the court. The text says he was a eunuch of the Pharaoh's court. And once a person is made a eunuch, well, that's a permanent change, 
And that means they're no longer considered a threat to any of Pharaoh's wives. We'll keep this fact, though, in mind for some things that come up later in the story. And so Joseph settles into his new life as a slave in Potiphar's house. Immediately, Moses tells us in the text that I read that the Lord was with Joseph in his circumstances, with Joseph in his circumstances. The effect of that presence of the Lord being with Joseph was that Joseph, we're told, becomes incredibly successful. Everything Joseph does in his capacity as slave turns out exceptionally well. And Moses makes abundantly clear that this success of Joseph was the direct result of God giving Joseph favor under his circumstances. I mean, we know Joseph was probably a talented guy. He had some natural gifts, I'm sure. He had some attributes that were all his own. But none of those things explain his success. The text says it was God giving him that success. Now, isn't this an unexpected way for the Lord to bless his child, Joseph? I don't know if you've thought about this, but I think it touches a nerve when we consider what God is doing here. We know Joseph carries the birthright within the family of Israel. That means he is the preeminent descendant of Jacob. Now, aren't you expecting that because of that, that when we read the text saying that God blessed Joseph, wouldn't you expect bless in this case to mean rescue? If I told you that Joseph is sold into slavery and then I report to you that the Lord has stepped in to bless Joseph, don't you assume that I am speaking of some kind of freeing of Joseph? Perhaps the Lord strikes Pharaoh with plagues so that Pharaoh would let Joseph go. Well, he did that for Abraham, didn't he? He did that for Isaac, remember? Or perhaps the Lord rescues Joseph through a battle like he did for Lot. Or perhaps the Lord would give Potiphar a dream that says, if you don't free Joseph, you're going to be hurting. That's what he did for Abimelech, remember? But that's not what he's doing. He's blessing Joseph. But instead of freeing the birthright holder of the family of God, he's making him a successful slave. God does nothing to change Joseph's circumstances, at least not in the big scheme of things, to free him, in other words, at least not yet. Instead, everything Joseph does as a slave, he prospers through so that he can become a successful man, according to verse 2, and so that Potiphar would take notice, which we see happening, which then leads to even more responsibilities as a slave. If anything, he's becoming more attached to Joseph in slavery, not less. Joseph eventually takes charge of all that happens in Potiphar's house, we're told, which means all the other slaves report to him. Remember, this man is maybe 19, maybe 20, and he's running the house. Now, keep in mind, he's a young man. He's a teenager. So everything that's happening must be a mystery. Self-evidently, the Lord is blessing Joseph. And so, can it be possible to say that God blessed Joseph while leaving him in the grip of slavery and oppression. Can we reconcile the word bless with the situation that Joseph is in right now? Yes, we can. Absolutely, we can. Because Joseph is a slave for a reason. And even though slavery as an institution is repugnant, Joseph's slavery plays an important part in God's plan. 
Therefore, the Lord desires Joseph to be in these present circumstances. But nevertheless, the Lord shows himself to Joseph while he's in slavery, showing himself to be faithful to his promises by bringing Joseph prosperity, even in the midst of slavery. And friends, here you see a biblical definition of the word blessing. A blessing is not something you want. It is not something you like, though we might call those things blessings when they happen. But biblically speaking, a blessing is anything that demonstrates the Lord's faithfulness and kindness. You see, a blessing isn't defined from our point of view. A blessing is defined by the Lord's point of view. It was a blessing when you are brought to your knees in conviction and repentance of your sin. But I assure you, you won't like that moment. Not at first. It was a blessing when the Lord was crucified on the cross. But I can assure you that there was not a a moment of joy or happiness for any who experienced it, not the least of all Christ himself. It was a blessing when the Lord gave Joseph prosperity in slavery, though I suspect if you would ask Joseph his preference at the time, he would have voted for freedom over prosperity in slavery. Moses goes out of his way in the narrative to emphasize God's faithfulness in the midst of these circumstances. The proper name of God, Yahweh, is used seven times in this chapter. We've already heard it used multiple times in the first set of verses. But it's only used one other time in the entire Toldot of Jacob. Multiple chapters. And you hear it seven times up front in this chapter. Why do you think that is? Isn't Moses determined to make clear to us that the Lord has not forsaken Joseph? That the Lord hasn't forgotten his promises? That the Lord isn't forgetting what he said he would do for Abraham's seed? That the name Yahweh itself we studied before is a name that denotes covenant-keeping, promise-keeping, faithfulness from God. And in the way that name is repeated, we are being assured these are not circumstances that demonstrate God's lack of faithfulness. There's not something wrong here from God's point of view. Joseph didn't just stumble into something and now God's run off and forgotten him. On the contrary, God is working. God is present. The blessing is evidence of that. God is faithful. So when you and I seek to be blessed by our Father in heaven, what we're asking for is God's faithfulness and his mercy in some capacity. And when you want those things, when you seek for God's mercy, when you seek for his blessing in some context, I want you to consider what he's promised. Because remember, if blessing is the evidence of God's faithfulness in our life, then it stands to reason that I need to back up a step and ask, well, what has he promised to be faithful in? What is his assurance to me? Because if he's faithful and that's the definition of blessing, then when I say, God, please bless me, I'm saying, God, please keep your promises. Well, what did he promise? Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice. Be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When I say, God, please bless me. And when my mind might imagine wealth, ease, success, fame, friends, what's the Bible going to remind me about? Persecution, defamation, trials of one kind or another. And it's reserved for the blessed, for the righteous. 
And you can know that when such things do come upon you because of your faith, it does not mean that God has fallen down on the job. It doesn't mean he's left you and forgotten all about you. God has not turned his back on you. It means that you are privileged to be counted among a cloud of great witnesses who have gone before you. It means you are witnessing the faithfulness of the Lord. It means that he is working through your circumstances for some great and wonderful outcome in eternal terms. And should you catch yourself, like I have myself from time to time, whispering under your breath that it isn't fair, that you deserve better, that you are the kind of Christian who should expect good things to follow for your piety, for your faithfulness, for your giving, for whatever, may I suggest you remember the one who stands ahead of us in line, the one who went before us in a test of unfairness, the one who stands at the head of the church put to death for no fault of his own, who willingly put down his own life. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So if you think, or if I think it's unfair, or if Joseph thought it was unfair as he was in the grips of slavery and God was showing himself but yet not freeing him, Just remember that while Christ hung on the cross, he had the power to command 10,000 angels to bring himself down, and he refrained from doing so, to be obedient to the Father. And when we can say we've equaled his sacrifice, then perhaps we have some cause to turn to God and say, where's the fairness? John 15, 20, the Lord says, remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So we're witnessing Joseph suffering for the sake of righteousness, but nonetheless, the Lord is blessing him in his suffering. How do you see Joseph being blessed here? Well, we're told Joseph is working in Potiphar's house. First of all, slaves in Egypt could have the most miserable of lives, as you might expect. Slaves built the pyramids, as we know. Under severe stress, thousands, if not millions of them, died over the course of the centuries in which those buildings were built. There were fields. We heard mentioned that Pharaoh had not only a house, but fields. Joseph could have found himself working outside in the hot climate day after day in the fields, in cruel and intolerable conditions. But no, he's not. He's in the house. And not just in the house, but he's over the house. There's no other slave lording over him. There's no one else to beat him. He's in the best of all circumstances. Friends, is that not evidence of God's faithfulness to Joseph under his current circumstances? And that is true blessing. It's a meaningful example of God providing for Joseph even in the midst of his suffering. If you and I are to walk as mature Christians in everyday experiences, we have to learn to view our circumstances in the way we are able to see Joseph's here and now. To look past the immediate circumstances, look at it from God's point of view, recognize faithfulness even in small acts of mercy. The secret is to see it as if you were Joseph and ask yourself, yes, I am a slave, but what are the odds that at my age I could be the one put in charge of the house to be the head slave, to have such great respect from a master of all the ways my life could be going right now? What explains the way it is going? With a mature perspective, you'll come back to the conclusion that look at the Lord blessing me. 
Friends, if you can come through a negative situation of some kind with the attitude that I see God's hand, I see his presence, I see him blessing me. Do you know what you inevitably have to come to at the end of that thought? You have to come to the thought then, well, I'm here for some reason. This is not bad luck. This is not something I need to escape. This is something I need to understand. And my understanding is predicated on an appreciation that I can see God in this, so he must want me here. And I don't know how many Christians have probably gone through bad life experiences and come out the other end with little or no learning, spiritually speaking, because they were too busy crying, woe is me, about why they were there, rather than stepping back and asking God, help me understand what I'm to get out of it, so that I might benefit from it. That's the attitude a mature Christian takes. Speaking of blessing, there is a second biblical principle working through Joseph's experience in Potiphar's house that we need to keep in mind. As a believer, you and I can, by our obedience, cause that the blessing that God gives us to spill over and affect the lives of other people around us, even the lives of unbelievers. You've seen Joseph become a blessing, we're told, to Potiphar. Here's a man who's done nothing right, at least not in terms of scripture. And yet he's finding tremendous blessing because one of his slaves is a man God is blessing. We've seen this before. Remember Jacob, when he was employed by that scum, Laban, Laban prospered. And on a larger scale, we know the scriptures tell us that the world will prosper because of the existence of Israel. God working through Israel to bless other nations, Gentile nations. And now you see it happening with Potiphar. This phenomenon didn't end with Joseph. All believers are a source of blessing to others in the world around us, as long as we are obedient to the Lord. Our nation, our nation here on earth, receives blessings because within it are men and women of faith who are led by the Holy Spirit and are trying to obey God's will. That's a blessing into the nation. Companies run by godly men and women can see that company prosper as God brings blessing to those individuals in one form or another. Godly employees bring blessing to their employers and godly parents bring blessing into their children. Godly neighbors, godly friends. The fact that God has blessed us in spiritual ways should be a source for us to bless others in like manner. You don't get many details here about the way Joseph served. You don't really get the secret to what made him so successful. But I can assume that he didn't spend a lot of time while he served in his house complaining or whining about the fact that, you know, I really shouldn't be here. I didn't deserve to be here. I'm really not a slave. I was sold into this. This is really unfair. You should help me get back to my real home. No, it seems best to suggest that he just went to work. He's a slave. God put me here. So be it. What do I do to be successful for where God put me? That's a really important attitude shift that can dramatically alter our ability to serve God. I've talked to many missionaries who have experienced one trial after another, one setback after another, one disappointment after another. But I don't know of a missionary yet who left the States for some distant land with a plan who saw that plan play out exactly the way they had before they left. I don't know of a single person for whom that's happened. In fact, I kind of chuckle now when a missionary who's young, bright, fresh, and innocent says, yes, I'm going over to do this, 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 this. Here's my whole plan. Good. Call me when you get the new plan, will you? And it's not to make fun of them. It's natural. We all do that. But the fact is that God has a plan, and he usually doesn't reveal it until we've taken a few steps of faith. But those detours, those new plans that come along, we initially perceive them as problems, mistakes, errors, things that need to be fixed. Like Joseph, 
The error of him being sold into slavery by his brothers. The situation of him being in Potiphar's house. All this stuff needs to be fixed. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. He could spend the rest of his life in slavery if that's what God deemed best. But while he's there, what can he do? He can be the best slave that he can possibly be. And through that, God rewards the obedience and there is blessing. And through that, that blessing spills over. And blessing to others forms good relationships, forms an attitude or an environment in which there can be good things returned to Joseph. You see, it all works to his advantage in the long run. Which means Joseph had to look past his own difficulties and he had to rest in God's sovereignty. When we experience suffering, when you experience injustice, may I remind us all to respond like Joseph did. And when you do, when you take hold of your circumstances in the right way, with the right attitude, and you say to yourself, you know, I understand this is what God's done, so I accept it. I'm going to do the best I can. He's going to watch me. He's going to see my attitude. And then the next thing that's going to happen is what? Things are going to get better, right? Do you know what happens next to Joseph? It doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. You see, he did all the right things, but it's not going to get better. Not yet. Not at first. Joseph's situation doesn't get better because Joseph does the right thing. It goes where God wants it to go. And he still does the right thing. We don't do the right thing because we get a reward for the right thing. We do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. We do the right thing because that's our command from the Lord. The right thing is to obey the word of God, period. And in Joseph's case, he will do everything the right way, according to the testimony of Scripture. And he will be mistreated and he will be betrayed and he will be further humiliated. It goes from bad to worse for Joseph. And you cannot explain that in a quid pro quo manner. You cannot say that Joseph made the right thing happen and he got good rewards and he made the wrong thing happen and he got bad things happening to him. And you see, that's how it works. No, folks, that's not how it works. Jesus says you will be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. You cannot obey yourself out of negative consequences as a Christian. And if you think you can, you will inevitably end up in the wrong place because the enemy loves that. If we get it in our minds that we can control the way our life looks by how we behave, spiritually speaking, then what will happen is the things that make us happiest will reinforce behaviors that are bad. And we will serve the flesh inevitably. And then we will explain it away as blessing. And we will use the word blessing not in the biblical sense anymore, but we'll start using it to talk about wealth and health and fame and ease and fun and enjoyment. Things that none of the apostles got to receive, as far as I can tell, according to Scripture, because obedience means putting yourself in the same position Christ did to the extent we can. So if Joseph's story is instructive at all to us, It's got to be instructive on many levels, but one of my favorite is the way it dispels the myth of blessing and reward in the walk of a Christian. We're surrounded in our day by shallow, misinformed Bible teachers who preach about blessing and they want to pander to your flesh and to my flesh, telling us God is ready to give us whatever we want, whatever we might desire, according to their definition of blessing. And they will argue that if your life is empty, if it's filled with need or with disappointment, it's merely evidence that God is displeased with you. And the reason that he's displeased with you is, and here comes the snake oil, here comes the close on the deal, it's because you're not doing or saying or praying or thinking what they think you should. 
And then the manipulation steps in. What they do is reduce our relationship with God to a monkey that dances to music. They reduce God's purposes to merely punishment and reward. Friends, God's purposes have eternal significance far beyond your punishment or your reward. Obedience is the demand and blessing will be the display of God's faithfulness and mercy in the day of judgment. So when you reflect on Joseph, ask yourself, what was Joseph's behavior? He was faithful. He was obedient. He was patient. He was long suffering. How did the Lord respond to that? Tested him by sending him into slavery and then blessed him by making him a successful slave and then tested him again by sending him into prison. Don't settle for simple and trivial views, false views of the Lord, the creator of the universe. Believe in his word and believe that he can bless you in the midst of persecution and trial through persecution and trial. Believe that obedience brings reward, but that reward is not going to be what the world would tell you that reward is. It's not visible. It's invisible. It's not determined to make your present circumstances better. It will often result in making your present circumstances worse from the world's point of view. It is designed to test you and to grow you and to reward you in heaven. Believe that God is present with you, even when you believe no one else is, knowing that he is faithful to his promises. And then believe that his pleasure in you is not measured by your happiness in what you have but by his happiness in who you are. And then lastly, believe trials and injustice and persecution are the best way God has to demonstrate who you have become in Christ and to see the power of that blessing. Heavenly Father, Father, we may ask this because your word tells us to, but I dare say, Father, none of our hearts embrace it the way we should, but we ask anyway. We ask, Father, for trial and we ask for persecution and we ask for testing, and we ask for slavery if necessary. We ask, Father, for the opportunity to show obedience and long-suffering as your son did. And we don't ask these things because our heart desires them. We don't ask them perhaps even with a hope to see them one day. We ask them because we're commanded to, because we're told to count it all joy, because we know the testing of our faith, Father, produces Endurance, and it will have its perfect work in us, Father, which is a faith that matures and grows us into the one that you'd like us to be. So I ask, Father, that we would have faith to know that whatever may come and whatever circumstances we may endure, that in the day of our eternal walk with you, in the day we are glorified, in the day we walk into the kingdom, we will look to one another and say to ourselves, yes, it was worth it. Now we can see how much we are pleased that we were given the opportunity to endure for your namesake. Give us faith to see that even now so that we would not shrink back from those opportunities, that we would not covet the things that are fleshly, the things that make our life easy, that we would embrace those things that are difficult. Let us see Joseph the way the Bible represents him, Father, properly, a man who suffered not for his own sake and yet endured that suffering, Father, in obedience. We also ask, Father, that that new attitude would be one that could bring us blessing in the true sense of the word, to see your promises fulfilled in our lives and to see us growing in a Christ-like way. And then, Father, let us be a blessing to others. Let us be that source that you may use to bring others the truth, 
Not by how our words would influence others, not by the impressive nature of our biblical knowledge, but because we live a life, Father, that is called out and communicates even more loudly than anything we could say that you are real and that you have the power to save. We pray for the opportunity to be a witness in that way. Let us come go forth, Father, from this church with a heart to reach the lost and to seek those who you are working in for the sake of the gospel. And then bring us back, Father, as you do every week, we pray, so that we may continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.